And I love that uh, this was almost set up as like a, a way for Alistair Gray to explore these questions and to find at the core of them, like what might be some faults in them. And she starts poking at them and saying, oh, what about this thing? You know, and like a lot of that stuff, I think is kind of the heart of the book. Um, and at the time I didn't realize it, how important it was to the message of the book, but I, I think it is sort of essential. Welcome, friends, to episode 301 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm writer Luke Elliott. And I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And this week we discuss Alistair Gray's 1992 novel, Poor Things. So what a weird book we just read. <laughs> what an absolute journey <laughs> we just went on. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. Uh, weird, sort of gothic. I went through a lot with this book. I uh, started it out and I was like, what the hell are we reading? I had no idea. I hadn't looked at any of the materials, really. I didn't know what the story was about. I've seen like one trailer for the film and I'd heard good things, but then I was like, what a bizarre story. And I like, as it kind of grew on me as it went on and it actually, I find to be like really fascinating and well-crafted, but like, holy shit, just the, just the premises <laughs> right off the bat. Crazy. <laughs> yeah. It's a wild one, man. Um, incredibly unique book, although um, heavily drawing on some, some uh, inspirations and some of which we've talked about with uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Totally. I think it became it became clear to me pretty early that this was was heavily drawing on that and some other books too that that I've re heard talked about but I'm not as familiar with that's the one that's like my touchstone um but yeah I mean this is a really fascinating book and then like looking up more stuff about the author he's a really interesting guy um huge connection to Glasgow and Scotland uh which was a bit delightful for me to read about because I'm going to Glasgow for uh Worldcon this year yeah so pretty rad that I'll be able to uh, maybe look around at some of these some of these places described. He has murals all over the city that are like prominent places you can go look at because uh, he's, uh, you know, an accomplished painter and, and artist, maybe even equally as famous for that as he is his writing, wow. um, which is pretty rad. I mean, Glasgow was such a big part of the story. Like I, I was surprised at how much it kept, kept coming back to that. And unfortunately, I don't know the history as I feel like there was some stuff that I was missing. Because uh, I wasn't, I'm not super yes. familiar with like the political, because there was clearly a lot of like political stuff that was being, some commentary being made here. Absolutely. This is a highly political book. And um, uh, I found a really funny quote from him, um, which I, I, I assume is being delivered sort of tongue in cheek, but also kind of serious. My stories try to seduce the reader by disguising themselves as sensational entertainment, but are propaganda for democratic welfare state socialism and the independent <laughs> Scottish parliament. My jacket designs and illustrations, especially the erotic ones, are designed with the same high purpose. Interesting. Um, like that. <laughs> so you definitely got a sense as you're reading it. It's like this is, you know, the political conversations that are going down. Like a lot of this book is about that. Um, and I think just a lot of his body of work is about that as he's exploring different facets of it. Um, but we're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves. What was your just general reaction to reading this book? Like uh, you said, it kind of grew on you a little bit, but like by the end, you know, how'd you feel about it? Yeah, I would say I started out detested by the book and I, you know, as it went on, I re realized that that was intentional. But what do you mean detested by the book? Like you just really didn't like it. I really didn't like where we were going with the story. It seemed like the male characters had so much like, control oh, I see. over over uh, Bella, this Bella character. And then the, yeah. the way that it comes about and the way that she's infantilized because she is basically a child and just the story premise from the get-go yeah. i was like is this just what it is it's like a you know a, a woman frankenstein that's going to i don't think it's a spoiler because it happened so early she's kind of created f to service a specific character and yeah. like in reading the entire novel it it there's a purpose to it but early on i was like oh this is kind of gross when was this written and i think it's cool because it's it's specifically written in like the 90s and then there's parts that take place in the 70s but then it goes all the way back to like victorian era and yeah. it's kind of like poking fun at some of the the social norms of the time and pushing back in certain ways and i felt it to be like pretty transgressive in those ways like paving new ground maybe i don't know for the yeah. 90s but it definitely felt like sort of in conversation with frankenstein taking a few steps further from what frankenstein set up in terms yeah. of having that social uh, commentary and then and like kind of reflecting that stuff to our modern sensibilities and 
you know, it holds some of the stuff is pretty wild because, you know, just in terms of like autonomy, like body autonomy and like having full agency and stories and some of those things are like still things that we talk about often in storytelling. Yeah, I, mean, I agree with you. It's um, I listened to a little bit of an interview he gave um, and he talked a little bit about this and he, he was mentioning like the Bride of Frank Frankenstein. Um, yeah. you know, some different movies that he was reacting to in addition to Frankenstein itself. And you can totally see that here, right? Yeah, it, it was a, just in generalities for me, same, a similar kind of thing where I was like, I had my sort of defenses up. I'm reading this and we often, you know, look at like older books. Um, and I wasn't, sh I didn't know when this was written. I had to look it up. That it was 90 in the nineties. I yeah. thought maybe it was like a seventies book or, you yeah. know what I mean? Cause, cause that's where the framing sort of device is. And I was like, how is this going to treat all this, all this stuff? Because this, this is some really touchy material. And even still, like, I think, you know, it's a very delicate sort of uh, set of material to talk about. It's, you know, potentially really triggering for people. Um, well, and I think it's highly interpretive, too. Like, I can see people reading this and still walking away, not liking it. Just, you know, based on premise and some of the things that go on. But. And he's sort of a surrealist author, right? And he's, he's, I think it's, I think it is designed to be that. And there's all these layers, which I appreciate, um, but are, they have like a pros and cons to them, right? So he creates all these narrative layers. And this, this was the main thing that started reminding me of Frankenstein. Yeah. Because when we covered that book, it's like, yeah, it's told from the perspective of the monster to an extent, but it's told through like a letter from the monster that the other characters reciting to another character on a boat in the future. And like, so there's all these layers that get introduced. Um, when we covered that, we, that was one of the things we liked the structure of it, the way that it was playing with the form. And I feel like Mary Shelley was like treating a lot of it as sort of like, well, this is, this is being tr truthfully told. It, it wasn't as much about like unreliable narrators. Whereas yeah. this, there's definitely a heavy element of like, is any of this true? We at the end, I would argue that I still am kind of it's highly interpretive. Like I said, like you can kind of draw your own conclusions and I, it's meant to be all of the things at the same time based on your perspective right. on it. Well, and like how much is is our uh, main character here, McCandless, lying and casting himself in different lights? And, um, you know, we get we get sort of a at the end, we get a, a counter argument that we can we can talk about. So I, I guess before we move, because we there's a lot of spoilery ways to talk about this that we're 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 dancing around that I don't want to get into yet. So um, before we get into that, um, would you recommend this book to people who are curious about it after after seeing the movie? Oh yeah, I mean I, I definitely would. I I think the th the things that we've described in terms of how he's playing with structure, there's some there's a lot of like social commentary going on, and I think some some empowerment that I wasn't expecting early in the, the novel, maybe like sex positivity and some other things like that, that we'll definitely dig into. Yeah, I agree. The The politics of it actually were, were pretty refreshing for, for an even, a, you know, even a 90s book to be sort of radical socially and, and, and politically far to the left, I would say. Um, and, and it was fun to see those ideas portrayed in a Victorian light, to see them being like trotted out and like how much pushback there is against any of those ideas at the time, right? Yeah. Um, and how radical uh, Baxter seems because he kind of, you know, fosters them, at least in Bella. And then Bella, of course, latches onto them eventually and how much pushback she gets. Yeah. So I think I would recommend it to people who are interested with the caveat, like, especially if you've seen the film, you kind of understand what the premise is. Um, Probably. Yeah. I mean, we we haven't seen it yet. <laughs> full disclosure. <laughs> I think you have to follow through with the the all of the, the strings and the threads that are being set up to really get the messaging of the story all the way through because even up like you know i kind of thought the story was about to end and then looking at my book there are plenty of pages left yeah and then we get this whole extra layer like you talked about these layers and um i think it's fascinating i think from a craft perspective it's really it's really uh you know creative and Definitely. and something to, to to check out it's one of those books that like isn't designed with reader e like the ease of reading anywhere near the forefront of this book. It's not as difficult as that might make it sound. Um, in fact, once you get into like the narrative proper, it's actually pretty easy to follow. Yeah. But it is written, it is definitely written in a certain style and it's got all these layers uh, and framing devices and um, all this like extra errata that is included in the book surrounding the narrative that yeah. complicates things and can be a bit, off-putting that's like when i was talking about the pros and cons like there is a con to that and that 
a lot of people will encounter this stuff and go like, what is this? I, I just wanted to read a book. This is weird. I'm, I'm going to stop. You know what I mean? Like, well, but I, I think people... I, I would recommend persisting because uh, I think there is a lot of value here. And again, I'm going to talk about this author and how important he is to Scottish literature. So um, if anything, if you're interested in that, he's definitely worth worth checking out. And to the people that maybe maybe get a little bogged down by the structure of it and everything, I would also say I find it to be really funny, like absurdist humor yeah. is something that, that speaks to me. And I, I, there were many times that like just the way that people are interacting and the way that the, the situations that characters are put in and the way that, you know, it's going against norms in really funny ways. That definitely kept me invested in times where I felt like there's a lot of dates and sort of like excerpts from newspapers and things like that being thrown at you. I would still recommend it for people with the caveat that it is a very much a Mary Shelley's Frankenstein with like a modern twist on it, but with a very heavy literary influence and, and sort of focus. It's trying to be different. It's trying to be boundary pushing. And that won't be for everybody and it might not be for you, but I think it's worth giving it a try. And for the record, by the end, I actually really enjoyed the novel. I thought it was it was definitely worth the read. Yeah, agreed. I also ended up liking it. I don't know if I would say that I loved it, but it's also one of those tricky ones because it's like the thing that's there, the meat of it that's really good is really good and really unique. And so that pushes it into this like great art territory, even as my reaction to it wasn't as like overwhelmingly positive because that's more like a taste surrounding the kinds of things I enjoy reading and how I was encountering some difficulty with all of this errata and all of this um, framing that was keeping me at a distance. But once I could like rationalize and step back and like look at it sort of intellectually, I found more appreciation for it. But that's a different way of reading than I think a lot of people are used to. Now, take that for what it's worth. So let's talk about Alistair Gray. He was born in 1934 and died in 2019. So only a few years ago. R.I.P. Um, he was a Scottish writer and artist. His first novel, Lanark, published in 1981, is seen as a landmark of Scottish fiction. He published novels, short stories, plays, poetry, and translations, and wrote on politics and the history of English and Scots literature. His works of fiction combined realism, fantasy, and science fiction with his own use of typography and illustrations, for which he won several awards. Uh, he is this legend in Glasgow, honestly. And, and I, I was watching an interview with a museum there. It was talking about how he wanted to capture life in, Gla in Glasgow and how like he was comparing it to all these other major cities like London and New York City. And he was saying like, when people go there, you recognize everything you've seen in art and it feels familiar to you. We had this experience when we went to New York, New York City recently. Um, at least I did. It was like, yeah, I, I, I feel like I kind of know the city. You know, obviously it's through the entertainment lens, but like there's some familiarity there. And uh, he was pointing out how there just wasn't anything in Glasgow. Like it's it's just a seldom used location. A lot of people don't have any experience with it. And he wanted to change that. So a lot of his art depicts Glasgow in particular. A lot of his novels are set there. Um, and he became sort of known as as like a beloved figure in that artistic scene. Um, and uh, his his murals are there's several of them all over the city. I was reading about one of them is in the Oran Moor, which I'm sure I'm saying wrong because there's accents on some of the letters. Yeah, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong. Um, it's a venue in which he has uh, this like ceiling mural that I've seen some images of. And I'm putting that on my list as like places I want to go. There's another one that's in um, the subway, like a, a mural along the subway. Um, when you're when you're coming out of it, it's a very distinct style. And once you sort of recognize it, I think it'll be easier to spot for me. His postmodern writing has been compared to that of Franz Kafka, George Orwell and Borges. It often contains extensive footnotes explaining the works that influenced it. And his books went on to inspire many younger Scottish writers, including Irvine Welsh, Alan Warner, uh, A.L. Kennedy, Janice Galloway, Chris Kelso and Ian Banks. Um, I, you know, the name that jumped out at me from there was the Irvine Welsh, uh, who we just covered for train spotting famous, yep. uh, Scottish author. So I thought that was cool to see that connection that this is one of his influences. So poor things itself, he wrote later on in his career, 1992. Right. Um, but when it came out, it won the Whitbread award and the guardian fiction prize the same year. Um, it was well, well regarded for its time. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's not seen as his best. That's that Lenark novel. Um, but I'll be curious to see how that might change with the popularity and success of Poor Things. Because I have a feeling that a lot more people are going to start associating this book with him than Lenark. 
Um, yeah. I don't know much about Lenark. I just know that it's said to be his like that's his like main work uh, among others. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. He also popularized this this phrase, and I don't know if you've ever heard this, but um, I heard this just a few years ago, and I really liked it. Um, and, and I don't think he came up with it, but he popularized it because he would like put it in a bunch of his books. He'd have characters bring it up. Work as if you live in the early days of a better nation. I, I think that was his sort of motto in life, it seems like to me. Like he was someone who championed these ideals and he saw that like, yeah, they're not taking off right now, but I'm going to sort of act as if these are the early days of one day we're going to look back and say like there were people who were fighting for this and this is the way that it ended up being you know a better nation so i i like that and i think that that's something that a lot of people struggle with right is you, is you feel hopeless um but if you look at it that way and you cast it that way um it can kind of help with that feeling yeah i mean so many problems feel larger than their era and then we look back at at certain things and we're like why didn't they just do this differently and yeah, to like reframe it in that way and think like, well, if we're in those days now, we can kind of self-assess as if we're seeing it ourselves from the future and say like, what can we do differently now to, you know, push us into the direction we want to be down the line. So that's cool. So this became a Scottish slogan uh, that represented opposition to Thatcherism, which is something we've talked a little bit about, I believe, in the past with Alan Moore. Um, and um, I know that maybe maybe it was Moorcock. Um we are outsiders looking at it, but I know that there is sort of the Margaret Thatcher era in Britain and a lot of the pushback and, and push for Scottish independence, which is something we also read the Irvine Welsh uh, champions. And that was something definitely Alistair Gray was, was uh, championing as well. He wanted to establish Scotland as an independent nation. Um, again, outsiders here. Um, seems like a good thing. Seems like, uh, you know, pushing back on colonialism and, and trying to establish independence. I do not know all the ins and outs and finer points of these politics. Yeah. I mean, I tend to, you know, you, you hear about like the, the stuff with the Irish and, and England and you hear about all, all of that that went on. So I assume, yeah, we would want these nations to, to hold independence. But I, again, we should uh, probably be more well-read on that subject. So he talked about how as a kid, he, he spent a lot of time in one of the Glasgow museums where he would walk among the, the displays and exhibits, and um, that would sort of set his ma imagination uh, working overtime, right? And um, he was also heavily inspired, because he, he talked a lot about how, like, as an artist, he was dismissed, and, like, his style is unusual, and a lot of people would say things like, well, you clearly spent a lot of time on this. <laughs> um, that would be like the compliment they would the compliment they would give him, and he'd be like, "Well, that was clear that they just didn't enjoy it or understand it." Yeah. Um, but one of the main inspirations he found for his art was he was reading books where the author themselves um, did art for it. Um, like I think he even mentioned Tolkien, um, and you have uh, you know Alice in Wonderland, and you have. Uh, although I'm not sure if that's the, the author themselves, but um, regardless, he, you know, there's all these different children's books that he would read and, and, and uh, other books where like the artist would do or the author would provide art and the art itself was like not the main purpose. And it was just kind of he, he called it like, OK, it's like he didn't call it OK, but like I'm summing up. It was just OK. Um, and that made it more approachable to him. And the fact that it was like it didn't have to be this amazing thing that you know you would see in a museum he was like oh okay i can do that that that's not too hard um and so that kind of kicked off his his style as being what it is i guess i don't know i'm not an art critic so it's hard for me to describe it in, yeah. in a way that is probably accurate but it's yeah. not it's not going for realism sure it's instead highly interpretive and there's something about that that i feel like evokes like pure art like i think of because I grew up listening to a lot of it, like like punk rock is like garage. It's not about like how great it sounds and stuff as much some of the time as it's about like the the energy behind it. And yeah. so in that in that capacity, like maybe the author is an author first and a, and a, you know, an artist after that. But to get the art from the mind of the person who created it. I think like gives some authenticity there and, and some level of like um, intention. It's like it, it doesn't necessarily have to be the best, especially when it can just like sort of put like a, a frame of reference in your mind and then you can kind of roll with it from there. Totally agree. Um, I think that was his goal, right? Um, he realized that he wasn't going to be able to do the other stuff. So this is what he wanted to do. And, you know, now he's world famous or, and he's especially famous in Glasgow, right? Um, I got a good taste for this art uh, because I got the ebook um, for this one. And I also had the audiobook because um, it helps me 
<laughs> stay focused. So I would often be listening to the audiobook while reading the ebook, right? Yeah. And there were some differences which you encounter from time to time when you're doing that, um, where things are just phrased slightly differently or something has been changed for the sort of audiobook adaptation of it. Um, but it was mostly the same. But what it did add was also a lot of this art, which he had drawn himself. Yeah. Um, and especially character portraits. It was really cool. Uh, and it definitely added something to it. There's all these little illustrations, like an anatomical illustrations and all kinds of things like that between all the chapters. Well, cool. and I, because the sexual nature of the book too, like there were a few that were like sex organs and you're like, mm -hmm. th there's something very like in your face about that, like, like stylistic. Yeah. It's not something you're expecting to see necessarily. Um, and then, yeah, just like other anatomy, like, like these people, there's a lot of like talk of surgeons and doctors and that kind of thing. So we're seeing like diagrams of hearts and spines and usually they would be around the beginning or ends of chapters and kind of in some way, uh, represent something that possibly happened in the chapters, mm -hmm. which I thought was cool. Very cool. And then a couple times we got like, uh, there would be a letter written from like Bella, for example, and we'd see pages from it and yeah. like her handwriting and stuff. And like, that was always cool because it would, you know, demonstrate a state of mind. And that was super cool like when that, that happened. And, and like kind of in the middle of the book, there's like five or six pages of just like scrawling. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about like what that, what that maybe meant, but it was cool yeah. to see. That's a cool thing to see in a book, uh, you know, cause that's not easy and it's caught, it's not like it's that cost effective. It's easier to print just words on it rather than print art like that. All right. So I think I'm going to read a little bit of plot here and we can talk about the book proper. Um, I, I do love that he sort of presents himself as the editor of this book. Oh, yeah. Um, really it's part cool. of the it's part of the fiction of it. Like this is just something that like somebody else found and he is now having the the moment to curate as the editor of it well, um, rather we... than the author of it. He says yep. the author of it is McCandless. Yeah. And, yeah. and so like there's some li let's talk about like some of that because there's some liberties taken and some fictionalizing because it's like there's clearly the Alice Alistair that's in our world. Yeah. And then there's the the fictionalized version who's the editor. And mm -hmm. then there's the, the you know, the person who found the book in the first place. Well, is kind that's of the, the funny thing author. is he, he mentions like two people that are like his friends that he's had lots of debates with about the nature of this book. And one sees it as very comic and the other ones, you know, what I mean, and those people are all, are also real. Right. Like his real life friends. Oh, wow. Um, cool. he, he like wrote into the book as well. And like, uh, you know, obviously discussing this, this fictional narrative. Um, and like, there's like an element of this where I think it's supposed to be taken as as like a, you don't know. Right. As like a little bit. It creates that little bit of doubt, I think, for some readers who are going to say, like, maybe this is a real thing that somebody found. Well, right? and it has ramifications at the end of the book, too. Like at first, yeah. you don't really know what why it matters that he's involved in the book as well. But yeah. as we come to realize there's like unreliable narrators across the board and even he within the, the fiction of the story as the editor could be uh, yeah. fudging things because he clearly says he changes the chapter titles in, in some cases. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's maybe then, not the only thing he's changing. We're getting it's a game of telephone, right? We're getting so many yeah. different versions and you're left to interpret kind of what you think is the the true story or meaning. Yeah, it creates a very interesting effect. So let's talk about the main body of the text, though, and that's what this plot's going to gonna at least at first, focus on. The main body of the work centers on Bella Baxter, a woman whose early life and identity are subject of some ambiguity. That ambiguity is complicated by her husband Archibald McCandless's autobiography, Episodes from the Early Life of a Scottish Public Health Officer, which distorts the truth about his life with Bella. He claims that she was a corpse, resurrected by McCandless's colleague, the scientist Dr. Godwin Baxter, who had her brain swapped with that of her unborn fetus, resulting in her having an infant's mind. While designed to be Baxter's companion, her sexual appetite causes her to pursue other men, including McCandless and a foppish lawyer named Duncan Wedderburn, with whom she elopes and embarks on a hedonistic odyssey around Europe, North at Northern Africa, and Central Asia. So that's how it sums up the plot of the book here, and I, I think that's a good at least jumping off point, and then we can talk about what happens from that. But yeah. We got to just talk about the that the the sort of bomb that just got dropped there. Yeah. Uh, the setup, the idea that she was a pregnant woman who drowned, and then this Frankenstein's what, what Victor Frankenstein, you might argue. Although there's also it's also heavily implied that he himself might be some sort of surgical creation. Um, mm -hmm. He's very he's very oddly shaped. His hands are very strange. They look like they've been like they're out of proportion. He has a lot of these like uh, digestive tract issues. He's like drinking vegetable juice and stuff throughout. 
Um, and his father was this like famous surgeon. So maybe his father's actually the Victor Frankenstein. Is he himself then like a Frankenstein's monster who is now creating the bride of Frankenstein? You could kind of read it that way. Right. But at the very least, Godwin Baxter is um, a very accomplished surgeon who is doing things that, of course, are like way beyond science of the time and even today. But he is able to take the brain of this like nine month old fetus and implant it into her skull. And then she is sort of reborn as this adult woman with the, the brain of an infant. And um, she's in this like attractive body. And you can immediately see why me and James were both like, oh, where's this going to go? Because <laughs> it's getting that's immediately getting to some really weird territory because she's also like sexual and like she keeps coming on to people, even as she has the brain of an infant. And just that being written by a man, <laughs> like, yeah, like that character being written by a man. I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> Uh, yep. I mean, it, it's also notable that I think at some point we we learned from Baxter's perspective that she wasn't actually dead. She was like brought as if she had died, right? She possibly drowned, but before I he think like resuscitated she was basically her or dead, something. But they were able to save the body, but the brain had died. I think. Okay, I think this is the first like instance of what something that I was feeling was to, some of the commentary here is like body autonomy. Men deciding what's going to yeah. happen to a woman's body. She not just died and drowned. She tried to kill herself. Yeah. So she she tried to she jumped off a bridge or something and tried to yeah, kill herself. We, we find out later why she did yeah this guy says you know what i'm gonna create a companion in quotes for myself and yeah. he's like talking about how like you know women are attracted to him and all this other disgusting stuff leading up to yeah. the reveal that this person's been brought back well, admittedly a lot of that gets thrown into question later on um some of this might be mccandless because this is all toward from mccandless's point of view right he's this other doctor who has met baxter um, as like they're like medical students together and he's like this guy is really brilliant but he's very strange he's very off-putting and then he's done this thing and like he interprets that as he's he wants to make this like sexual companion for himself right and she's not but she's not attracted to him because she she views him more as like a father figure or god which i it, it was funny how she shortens his name to god and just refers to him as god so funny she eventually ends up in scenarios where, where like philosophy is being discussed and debated and then it's so funny when people will ask her about it and she's like well i know my god and then she's talking about <laughs> god when the person who like created her but yeah. to get back to the whole body autonomy thing like she she made a decision and then someone else made, like took that out of her hands brought her back and then was going to force her to basically be like a sexual object, sexual companion. Um, and well, then we well, get into the fact we that we should say like, he wasn't going to like force her, but that was kind of his hope. Um, but in, it, it seems like he was intending to just raise her. Um, and then he hoped that it would develop into he, she would become a romantic partner for him, according to McCandless. Yeah. Again, that's all still terrible to, to raise yes. something and then want it well, to be and this is what you're talking about that like transgressive like oh my god like uh like almost um seedy like just just to imagine it it's like oh my god and and like it definitely sets you like as soon as you get to this part like that's where i was like hooked you know it's like human nature right you're like how dare he write this <laughs> and well and that's something that you know getting into that territory of like taboos and and things that yeah. that like like exploring that space in a way that has substance and has a message to it. I think eventually throughout the story, it plays out. But yeah, yeah, early on, we're reacting to how we were in the moment. And so then you consider, all right, this is an infant, like yep. a baby yep. in a body of a, of a grown woman. And then the way that there's a sexual interactions happening very soon, and they kind of very early explain on. All that like, oh, it's part of the chemical makeup of of you know the the human body at that age yeah. and then she's like hasn't been burdened with sort of the social norms and all this other stuff but regardless uh they are wanting that it seems like mm -hmm. all the men right away are pursuing that and kind of oh, trying yeah to every man that interacts with her is immediately in love with her and like wants her to marry him and like yeah yeah happens so, over and over again and McCandless knows from Baxter kind of where she is mentally and he's like yeah let's get married and all this other stuff when she's effectively yeah. like not even a year old or maybe I don't know they, they explain that like her because of her body's age it allows like development faster as far as the brain's concerned but so that's that's what's that's the explanation we're given is that her mind is is like accelerating through development because she's in an older body it's like it's like trying to catch up 
and um, it's demonstrated her like mental age is demonstrated by the friends she has and like how she feels about them. Yeah. And um, the first time McCandless meets her, she has like a toddler who's a friend. Um, so it's like clearly that's kind of her mental age. And then like later on, uh, you start to see it kind of sort of progress and she's like friends with the older kids. Um, but even then starts sort of rapidly outpacing them. One of the reasons why I was this made me worried is there is this trope. And um, I it first came to my attention as a thing by uh, the YouTube channel Pop Culture Detective, which mm -hmm. I, I'm sure you've seen some of his stuff. Yep. Um, he does great breakdowns where he talks about these tropes. And one of the my favorite videos he has is called Born Sexy Yesterday. I think that's the, the name of it. And it talks about the trope of the like childlike woman who's in an adult like sexual woman's body and how this is a disturbing fantasy that plays out time and time again in across media. You'd be surprised to see how often it seems to come up. And so being aware of that trope, when I'm reading this, this is like the embodiment of that. Yeah. Um, so I was immediately worried, but I am glad to say that I think Alistair Gray was sort of aware of what he was doing here. And so a lot of what plays out interrogates that in a sense. Um, now, whether or not it's perfect, you know, I think that is far beyond me to say, um, but um, it is it is dealt with not as someone who is like bungled into this trope right yeah and, and it's is more like he's doing this very deliberately to provoke certain reaction and then to analyze how the men treat her to analyze like how she re responds to that as she starts to have this burgeoning self-awareness and and maturity and how she starts to immediately identify how she's been used and how she's been perceived by people um and how that makes us feel about them um and and makes us feel yeah, I, I, it makes me makes me feel about McCandless or it makes me feel about Wedderburn uh, and even Baxter himself. Her development is happening very quickly. She decides to marry McCandless. That's like a very early decision that I would argue she was too young to make. But then so she, they get engaged. They get engaged. Sorry. Yeah. And, and she's like, all right, see you soon. Yeah. And then like then when he comes back the next time, she's like, oh, and I'm actually running off with this other guy <laughs> um, who I met. And then immediately she has like a time distortion problem where like it's only been like six days, but she perceives it as years. Um, and she's like, oh, we talked it like, but it's been a such a long time since we've spoken again. I almost forgot about it. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, this other this Wedderburn guy who seems pretty awful. Um, just immediately, again, every guy who interacts with her is immediately taken by this woman who has the brain of a child. So, yeah, you can see how how kind of disturbing that is. Um, but, yeah, he's immediately taken by her and wants her to join him. And she's like, OK, um, because early on, she's also described as just like being really sexual and like wanting to explore. And, and that's like you're talking about, like you can be perceived as sort of body positivity, sex positivity, but also how that's getting sort of manipulated by these men around her. And how you have to talk about this with children, right? It's, it's, it's her first forays into sexuality are sort of innocent and understandable because she's in the body of a woman and she's interacting with adult men. It becomes very uh, complicated, <laughs> yeah, to put it mildly. Right. And so she goes off on this journey, has this sexual appetite that not even this guy can keep up with or whatever. Right. And so she's she's like it's not just about the sexuality too. She's like, he's exhausted. He's staying on the ship. I think they're on like sort of a cruise and they got off yeah. at locations and she goes and explores the city and, and has all these fascinating new discoveries and is really like, in essence, discovering herself as, as yeah. like people tend to do. They find themselves at certain teenage to young adulthood kind of age. And, um, this mirrors a little bit of, uh, the monster's journey in Frankenstein when he goes off, of course, and, and, and lives with other families and explores the world and becomes highly educated. Um, I thought that there were some similar similarities in the, their stories here. Her rapid maturation seems to continue and she becomes like a brilliant doctor and um, a, a, as we move along. But um, I, I was also really interested by jealousy in this book and how if one thing could be said for McCandless that I found redeemable about him that maybe didn't just hate him is that at the very least he he has like moments of jealousy but then he quickly moves past them um as he sort of genuinely seems to be impressed with her um at least later on as she starts to demonstrate her own autonomy and um she's sending these letters where she's um, exploring the world and exploring all these different relationships and um, becoming this like formidable person in conversations because she like recounts entire passages of conversations she's having. And I think he like, 
this is where he like seems to actually fall in love with her as a person versus I would argue early on where maybe it's a bit more of the sexual object um, than, than anything else. Um, but by the time she returns, it seems like he has actually fallen in love with her through these letters. At least that was my interpretation of it. Yeah. Uh, and just to, to check back in on the layers here, I think this is a good time to note that we're talking about Gray as the author. Yeah. Is then editing this this piece written by another author who's McCandless. McCandless, McCandless yeah. is writing in the story the letters that... that she supposedly <laughs> that, wrote. Yeah, she supposedly wrote. So all of these, all of these layers of possible misinformation and misinterpretation and all of that yeah. is there. And so non-reliable is taken to like the next level all mm -hmm. across the board uh, in this story. So, so even the stories that Bella is telling in her letters back could be possible fabrications or, or, or changed in some ways. So just, I don't right. know, very, really interesting to think about that as we go along. That represents like a big part of the book where she's left... The whole time, let's, what's your take on Godwin? Because he, he's an interesting figure at first who seems very guarded of her, seems very protective of her. According to McCandless, it seems because it's like he wishes that she would be his companion. Um, but then he quickly likes the idea of her being with McCandless, especially over Wedderburn, who he really disproves of. He does have this like funny affect to him, and um, he's a very oddball guy. And every time he offered him this... like weird vegetable gruel that he drinks made me laugh um it, it was it, there was definitely an element of humor there that um that persisted throughout that i did enjoy yeah they, they talk a couple of times about like mccandless and baxter having dinner together and mccandless has to sit like all the, as far away on the table as he can because he's he's in while he's eating or drinking he's also ingesting some sort of like foul smelling liquids and things like that that or are maybe emitting an odor it was implied yeah he because again like it's it's kind of implied that maybe he himself is a surgical yeah you know creation i do think there's some some uh significant weight to that i think that that's possible yeah. eventually they end up at this brothel and i think this like uh does so a lot when you say they Bell bella and um wetterburn and some of the men she's met along the way yeah wind up at this brothel yeah really interesting sort of moment where she puts the pieces together i think with a lot of like the sexuality and then she's also had these conversations about politics and religion and yeah and um i thought all of that was really rich and honestly that's what this book is right it's very rich in terms of like all the thing all the layers that you're getting and the thought-provoking moments that are there and and again this this story is designed to make you think about yeah uh, you know think down different paths that you possibly haven't before well if we unpack that a little bit right when we see her as younger in her mind right and she's talking to these men who at first are, are sort of treating her as as if she is you know completely immature and she they're like introducing these ideas to her like let me explain these ideas to you right and i love that when she's younger and less knowledgeable about the world the certain ideas appeal to her right the idea that the world is great as is the idea that like england is this uh or anglo-saxons in particular are these like superior race who who are, whose like job it is to go around the world and introduce them to the better way of life and when she's this like younger maturation in her mind she's like oh yeah that makes sense yeah i like that this is this is all great um but as she starts to becoming more and more exposed to the world and she sees uh, how much people are suffering and she sees the effect that the colonialism has had around the world, she immediately flips, right? Or she starts to flip and she, she becomes much more interested in socialism um, and anarchism and, and different things like that. And um, she, you know, I, I love that it's like, as she matures, so do her politics in that direction. Yeah, I think is a very specific message that well, Alistair Gray is putting on here, right? It's like, yeah, when you when you were a child, you might have thought these one things, but maybe uh, as an adult, you should think differently about it. Well, and and the commentary is made there too that like, um, I think inherently prejudices are are you're not born with those. That's something society puts on you, and yeah. so like the early on, and they're appealing. They're appealing to a mind that isn't going to think deeply deeply about them, right? So early on, Bella is like, I, I didn't think anything. I thought everyone was kind of on the same page and I thought we were yeah. all the same here. And, you know, everyone's my brothers and sisters kind of thing. We're all family. And then they they're like imposing all these beliefs and all this other stuff on her. And she's like and it's funny, like I said before, you know, when in talking about religion and some of these other things, she keeps saying like God, my God. And she's talking about Godwin. Yeah. In a lot of ways, which just continues to be really funny. And she calls a uh, canless candle. My candle, yeah. She's his bell, and he's my candle, yeah. 
yeah I just, there's there's many moments that are they're very funny in these otherwise like very serious conversations um and yeah so so kind of imposing all that on this young mind and then seeing a rational uh person with good morals sort of navigate that and make their own decision and find the, you know what the difference between right and wrong without somebody yeah. explicitly telling them I thought and was, in fact was, they're telling her the wrong like often the wrong things and they're doing a great job of explaining them in ways right like they're very persuasive and we're I, I constantly was like oh no how much is she going to believe this what he's saying because he's saying it in a very persuasive way and i love that uh this was almost set up as like a, a way for alistair gray to explore these questions and to find at the core of them like what might be some faults in them and she starts poking at them and saying oh what about this thing you know and like a lot of that stuff i think is kind of the heart of the book um and at the time i didn't realize it how important it was to the message of the book but i, I think it is sort of essential yeah um so a lot of that stuff uh, which is which is told multi-layers down right like we're deep in the <laughs> we're you know we're, we're 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 deep in the dream here um yeah. and multi-layers deep we're incepted um, and, like five yeah, years deep. yeah and who knows how true any of this is right of course it's all fiction but like e even within the truth of the narrative how true any of this is so the brothel I, I do think that's really important because finally she gets the influence of of a woman now she's had one before and she's throughout mentioned as having sort of what they call sapphic relationships so she's clearly got a she's at least bisexual or um you know open to sex with anybody um, and she has these different relationships, but those were so frowned upon for the time and not viewed as serious. Um, and um, so, so it's not what, something that she pursues, but um, she had had this relationship with like a tutor or something at one point that, um, that doesn't work out. Um, but then now she finally gets like more, another perspective from a woman who is like the madam of a brothel and has a very worldly sort of understanding of how men are and how the world is and imparts a lot of that knowledge onto her after she's had all this, uh, you know, stuff from all these different men. Um, she gets that perspective. I think that finally rounds her out in a way and gives her some perspective on her particular um, gender and, uh, you know, the way that society views women. Um, which is like the finally the much needed context I think she needs. And it also provides some context for her for like sex and how men view sex and yeah. how women have uh, can use sexuality. Right. Um, and she also for what a time works as a prostitute. So she sees that there is a, even a way to like the way that like currency is exchanged for sex in this scenario, I think finally shows her something about sex that she, I think up to this point, didn't really understand. Yeah. I think that you could argue that that's what people people go through uh, in growing up and specifically women like yeah. in learning like early on there's urges and desires and things like that and then like you said the sort of baggage that comes with it when when more experienced people come along and, and just as you as you develop as a person but uh she's so strong on her own at this point now she's fully she has all the information she has all the context like you said and she's so formidable because she's like explored the world she's heard all these philosophies she's really in like become into her own and then now she's become intimidating to all the men in in the yeah. story which early on it was all about like the men preying on her and the, and then like we get a little bit of her sort of like well you now know, they represent a, 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 she she represents like a challenge intellectually to them yeah and a threat is, almost but a threat, all the men didn't want right <laughs> that they they wanted the child who wasn't an intellectual threat who, exactly. gonna, who was going to challenge them in a victorian era too like this isn't the 90s this is like so it's very like modern in that sense yeah. um and it's kind of poking at, at some of the things that went on i did i did era. love to see the sort of pride it seemed like baxter was taking in it though right like he it, even as even as he was trying to treat things delicately because he knew that mccandless was in love with her and so he was trying not to provoke jealousy um as much as as much as he maybe could but it seemed like he, there was also a, a budding pride on his part as he is he was really admiring the woman she was becoming through the course of these letters. Um, yeah, that, that was interesting to see. It makes me like Baxter a little bit more like, and, and ultimately I did find that he was a, a, a sort of a tragic figure that I did like. Um, and even as McCandless is also kind of a tragic figure that I, that I found my way to having affection for um, to really, uh, I thought I was going to heavily dislike both of these guys. Yeah. I would on. say for me, the, the, the waters are still muddy there. Like their, their intentions sure. oh, and the setup, sure. <laughs> the, their, their, their intentions early on paint them 
as sort of like what what their baser instincts or what the you know what they actually think um especially with baxter being the one to create because that's sort of the the victor frankenstein like the the unnatural nature of getting into some of these sciences and yeah. and creating something like this against although if he himself is a monster created by his you know the surgeon that was his father then that it becomes more understandable that he would reach to this as a way to create a, a companion for himself right like we it's hard to blame the monster for creating the bride of frankenstein right a little bit yeah um i don't know i yeah. i think mcganless having all the information along the way too uh, and and agreeing to a to a engagement that early, um, I guess you could you could say there were like they become engaged marriages. when yeah that's there true. have always yeah. been in, arranged marriages that kind of are like maybe age wise don't match yeah. up well and maybe you could say like in the Victorian era there's something like that but for me I was like he has all the information and he's weird about it the whole way through and yeah he kind of develops into actually loving her for the person she is yeah but Seems at the like same it. time great character for me I'm of not, course I'm not... this is also his account of what happened which True. is highly yeah. doubtful um but one of the things i will say about him is that yeah like he knows her mind is like maybe early teens and i think that's the point in which they become engaged um and he proposes to her is like his his like his his ultimate love um so yeah he knows um and he casts it as like he's like well she needs to be with someone like me like he, he, it's like clearly all these other men are, are like trying to to uh, not steal her away, but like uh, she's she's going to be in a much worse situation with all these other men. So it's better. It's me. Seems like it's sort of justified to himself a little bit. But also he's just he's just smitten with her. Um, and he, on sometimes it doesn't even seem like he analyzes that for himself. Like, why do I like her so much? Like, And that never comes out. He never talks about that. Right. He just does. I actually thought it was kind of strange again because this is possibly all fictionalized that we're going to learn here in a minute uh i thought i thought it was very interesting <laughs> within the narrative right, right yeah, within yeah. the narrative uh i thought it was interesting that like in the end they end up together uh yeah i was kind Although... of like analyzing that and i was like <laughs> yes. oh, okay what's the intention of the author here if they do end up together after all of this and yeah. then uh but, but we got to talk about the last we'll, we'll get to the last bit but before we get there let's focus on this final scene which i think is going to be a really huge moment in the movie i assume so it's worth talking about here it's the sort of climax of this 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 main narrative that's when she comes back they go to have their wedding and then at the wedding shows up uh her former husband and her father from when she was victoria before she was bella baxter and they're there to say, hey, you can't get married because you're married to me, you know, this general. Um, and that sets up this this confrontation almost that happens back at uh, Baxter's home where he has them all over and they sit down to talk about it. Um, and we get the story about Victoria and her life and uh, Victoria Blessington and like talking about layers, right? It's told to us from the men who are at the heart of it, who are the most likely villains in her life, right? Her father, who refused to help her at her most desperate time because he found, like, pregnancy icky was, like, one of the main reasons he gave. <laughs> he was like, oh, she was really pregnant. I didn't want her to be around. Um, and, you know, she had, like, come to him in desperation, right? And she was so depressed and driven away from this man, this general, who we learn is, like, not a good dude. It was, like, a, kind of a war criminal. Um, and he is the one who is recounting to us about like her life and how oh yeah she totally loved me and she, this is what she was and she was sex obsessed that was her main problem um and yet he was like having affairs on the side with like servants um or or, or abusing servants um so it's all it's all unreliable right like nothing they're saying can be taken on face value and yet we are learning about her between the lines and that's some of the like clever cleverest writing to me i really love that how we're learning about the woman that she actually was by understanding that these guys are lying <laughs> or they're at least like uh distorting the truth right to try and tell a version of it that makes them look good um, and i love that our characters are clever enough to see through it because all of them to some extent like there's like they're giving it looks to each other uh McCandless and baxter uh where they're like this is not true <laughs> like they, clearly this man's lying um and then and then bella of course throughout um She's eating it up. She's learning about her former self. But I think she is so smart at this point. She recognizes that, okay, none of what he's actually, like the surface level of what he's saying is not true. Yeah. Even if some of the facts may be true. 
I mean, and, and so another thing that had just happened previous to this is when she gets back, she asks where her baby is to Baxter oh, yeah. and, and uh, McCandless. And, and like she kind of figured they don't tell her and she figures she figures kind of puts it all together. So she's like realizing she doesn't have a past. She's realizing like she's kind of her own daughter in a sense. And OK, so I wasn't clear that she actually understood that at this point. Um, I think she I mean, I think it's implied that she's figured out that at the like, very least she knows she was sort of resurrected by godwin yeah and that she has amnesia about her life before and then she thinks her baby just died when she died i wasn't clear that she understood that her brain was like her baby's brain and that she is her own daughter in that really fucking weird sense um which is a mind fuck and and i was kind of i wanted a scene where where we got that that was one of the things that i would say i i thought was kind of missing because she's brilliant at this point in the story and you know throughout to an extent but like at this point she's developed into this like brilliant woman and i wanted to know how she would feel about that reveal right. and i ne i got maybe you can interpret that she was guessing at it but she never like said like that's who i am this is how i feel about it you know and maybe that's just too big of a question to have her grapple with um and and i don't know um and we get some sense of it in the final letters um, but it's dismissive, um, and we'll get to why. Um, but you can maybe read between the lines because a lot of this book is about that, like, what is what is actually happening behind what is being said, right? Um, and what's what's the motivations of the person writing it, right? And yeah. for that example, McCandless here throughout is trying to make himself look good, so he does come off as somewhat sympathetic. But he's the one writing the book about himself. So <laughs> she's she surpassed, I think, everyone else in the story as far as like autonomy and what she's like, the way she impacts what goes on. So like this guy is like, come back with us. And there's all these debates that go on as far as yeah. like there's lawyers and people involved and who's in the right and who you know, who can have her basically. Yeah, and exactly. Then, she's a possession at this point. They're trying to de determine who owns her. And eventually she's like, I'm going to make the decision. She, she kind of makes the decision. She's like, I'm staying here. I don't want to live in. I think she even calls life with uh, that general a prison or something like that. Yeah. And so she she makes the decision to stay there with Baxter and and Mary McCandless. And then um, this general Blessington pulls a gun and, and yep. holds everybody up and then ends up shooting her in the foot because she kind of like stands up and runs in. She like grabs the gun from him and it like goes off or something in the, pro in the process of her taking it from And then him. only yeah. then do all the men kind of react, right? Like she's again the first person to take action here and, and like take, so we've seen this character develop from like seemingly a child to now taking con full control of the narrative. Um, and again, it's all up to the interpretation of, of what McCandless is writing, but um, I thought cool to see that she she stood up for herself in this in this uh, narrative and then also kind of made her own decisions whether I feel like she should be with McCandless or not. That's that's, you know, I guess not my yeah. place to say, but I always I just felt like it was weird even even at the end that they ended up together. But well, yeah, but we'll talk about the final letter. Um, so, yeah, this this big this big reveal, um, she takes the gun, she fires the rest of the shots into the to the fireplace um, but really the big moment is when she reveals that she knows something about this general, that he is actually this this uh, infamous customer of the brothel in which she worked at, where he would come in and like get into the most like depraved things. Right. Um, and he, you know, at the very least. Uh, would be very embarrassed to have these details come become public and her knowledge about his intimate you know, proclivities um, is enough, I think, to make him back off. And that's ultimately how she's able to 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 get him to leave her alone and to allow this to happen. Um, because, yeah, he seems like he's a pretty awful dude. It seems like he is abusing, you know, his servants and was clearly a terrible husband. So, um, yeah, she ends up sort of winning there and getting getting her own way. Um, but that that sort of winds up being the end of this nested narrative. And then we get a bunch of this errata afterwards where it's a lot of like, like clarifying facts, talking about things that are definitely true. And like, uh, here's what, you know, we hear about the fates of each character. I guess we should say that supposedly Blessington shoots himself um, often is his, his home. Um, Godwin eventually succumbs to uh, like this illness that he's had for a long time. Yep. McCandless 
and and Victoria are, are are seemingly happily married, have several children. She becomes this a, a really accomplished doctor. Um, he himself is also like this health officer, um, uh, according to him. And like he had this like, you know, fairly, fairly productive life, but it was kind of like outshined by his amazing wife who did all these things. Um, and then and then he ends up dying. Um, and then after he dies. We get this final account from Victoria herself, where she has written this letter, where she is reacting to this book. This is the 70s narrative. This is like yeah. the it's like it's supposed to be like the last living uh, relative of them, of Victoria. Yeah. And it's like, I think grandchildren. Yeah, she's writing it to her grandchildren or something. Yeah. That's right. So yeah. this is her account of like, these are all the, you know, this, this book got popular. It's out there. People know the story, but I want to like go in and say like, you know, some of this is bullshit and tell my side of the story. Yeah. She basically says it's all bullshit. She's like, I wasn't, you know, the brain of a fetus implanted like that. None of that's true. And she has this like account of her life growing up um, that, dra you know, is drastically different. Um, she talks about how she did uh, have a relationship with Baxter and how she actually was in love with him and he wasn't that ugly and that that was all made up by McCandless. Um, and then she is like well, talking about her relationship with McCandless. This completely recasts it because she's very uh, dismissive of him. And like she's like, yeah, he's kind of an idiot. Um, <laughs> he was he was fine. But I don't know why he was so obsessed with this book and why yeah. he decided to write it. Um, you know, he was maybe jealous of me. Um, and it seems like at this point, if you start to read between the lines, what did you think the purpose was of her writing this account? Um, because to me, there was like, I, I think there is truth to this. I think there is like this, this is what really happened in the narrative, but she's calling it all lies for a reason. What do you think? So multiple things. I think one, I don't think you can come down either way uh, on, on a, quite a lot of these things. I'm interested to hear, but I think that it could, because I think it exists in a space where like both things are kind of true yeah. and, and I'll get into why, because uh, I, I want to give the perspective of a reader here. Like this first section, why would we've been talking about unreliable narrators and like that's kind of the stuff that we're bringing in knowing how the ending goes when you're reading the story initially you kind of you're going to believe the the narrator because that's in yeah. typically although in he does say like there are skeptics who won't believe this like that's one of the things he keeps talking about and he's like here are, here's my proof as to why then we get into something that feels a lot closer to the real world and doesn't have these supernatural elements to it. And we have someone who is there, there's facts that are that are given. Right. And there's facts in the original story that maybe some of that holds some truth. But then we move into this and it's like 1970s, you know, telling it to her grandkids. Why would she why would she lie in a lot of these things? She was a successful doctor. All, yeah. all of this like legitimizes this character. And so we're like, OK, like, let's believe this character then. Like, this is clearly her her kind of trying to say, like, this is all fake. This is this is actually what happened. Or you can read it as she's trying to cover up the fact that she is some sort of, uh, you know, creation and yeah. she doesn't want there to be like something like that on her in on her legacy like like basically where people will look back and think like oh well, that's weird and and unnatural and that kind of yeah. thing well and also the controversy around the fact that she knows like no one's going to believe it anyway so right. it's better if they just don't believe it right kind of trying to like shroud some of the mystery there like cover it all back up in, in, in the ancient past but um i i do want to say we get this third element uh in the story that's like Alistair Gray giving all these like historical edits and all this these papers and everything that he's like compiling and giving notes on a lot of the story. I noticed that there were some there were some things that contradicted what she was saying in her yeah. version of the events as well. Yeah, I think he's kind of pointing us to towards it maybe being actually true. But it's 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 the truth is unknowable even within the narrative because like you said how unreliable McCandless is. So I came down on it to where like I think Alistair Gray is implying that these events happened within the narrative. They were misrepresented by McCandless in a way to make him look better. But a lot of that is fairly accurate. Victoria at the end to me is trying to, she, she, cause we know Bella Baxter wanted to change the world. And when she got married to McCandless, that was her like goal is like, we are going to change the world for the better together. And then that became her life. Um, through the things she did as a doctor, but also politically, she was like constantly lobbying. She was this like well-known socialist and she was trying to change the world for the better. And then she even at the end of her life, um, 
there's like this big political win and she's like, this is going to change everything. Glasgow is going to be on the right, you know, on the right path. Now Scotland's on the right path now. And I'm not going to believe anybody who says otherwise, because I want to die happy. <laughs> well, um, and she, I think she, like, she's like a well-known like suffragette, like women's rights, like sort of like feminist, uh, in, in that community as well. And at this point, her husband has died and she now is in another sapphic relationship, which I thought was interesting how once again, it comes back to that. Um, and she, uh, yeah, she's like she like lives alone with all her dogs, which was also an interesting echo of like Baxter. Mm -hmm. uh, she seems kind of like Baxter like at this point. She's this, you know, what renowned surgeon um, who lives with all of her animals. But again, I think she is trying to unmuddy the waters when it comes to her legacy, because what she ultimately cares about is her what she does later in life, like her later works, right. her, her her role as a doctor and as a as a political figure. And she doesn't want that to be tarnished by what may have been her origin. So she's distancing herself from all of it, calling it all lies. Um, and and I, I like that because that that underlines that ultimately for her, none of that's important compared to like what I did later in life and what I'm doing now. Yeah. Um, right. And so that to me is the motivation behind those final letters. Um, even as like, yes, maybe there is some inaccuracies that she's rightfully pointing out, but maybe there are some other things that are true that she's calling inaccuracies um, because yeah. everybody in this, in this story is lying to some extent at all. At exactly. All times. Exactly. So, so, you know, you can be forgiven for interpreting it however you want. I kind of, yeah, that was my interpretation. I kind of line up with what you're saying as far as like, I want to believe that some of this stuff happened, but there's then a part of me that also doesn't want to believe some of the like the like kind of disgusting stuff that went on, uh, yeah. like how she was treated and that kind of thing. Well, but it also helps with like the the idea that like this was all written by a man and like maybe some of this stuff is from a male perspective. Sure, sure. Male gaze, voyeuristic kind of yeah. yeah, look at it. it yeah, it gets away. It, it 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 puts that onto McCandless. It's like no, that's not Alistair Gray. That's how McCandless was interpreting it because <laughs> he was you know this fucked up guy. Right. Um, so he kind of like is is creating like a distance between himself and that potential criticism in kind of a brilliant way too. Like to to yeah. to kind of walk the razor's edge of telling this kind of story and and obviously giving it the social weight that it that it deserves yeah. in really cool ways. But um, I also love in her kind of takedown of McCandless's uh, recounting of the events. She she like I think she mentions Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, right? Yeah, she's like, oh, this is clearly drawn by Mary Shelley and Edgar Allan Poe. He was reading a lot of that at the time, so you know it's a very sordid tale, you know. Yeah. So that like you know that's one of those scenarios where it's like that's an easy way to cover that stuff up. And uh, yeah, Alistair yeah. Gray was a big fan of Poe, by the way. I can see that. I love it when all these little connections happen with uh, the past things we've covered. So. Yeah, I, I thought this was brilliant and ultimately highly interpretive, very confusing and weird, but also like really cool. Uh, I love that it ended up being kind of a political manifesto in, in a way and how the, the, the sort of radical left wing politics of Alistair Gray um, made it into this book. And, and, and it's really in a really interesting way is yeah. sort of analyzes, you know, what it means to be a good person and what it means, like what kind of person you can even be. Um, really cool stuff. Like we could quote whole, all sorts of it now, but we don't want to get too deep into it. Here at the end, though, if you're okay to to speculate, yeah, let's I want to hear your thoughts on a potential film adaptation <laughs> of this book. Because what a fucking wild book to try and put on screen. You can't. It seems to me have so much unreliableness. Like you're. I always feel like the camera is going to show something that is we're yeah. supposed to perceive as true. I think in my estimation what i would assume they would do is strip back some of these layers just a few of them right the alistair gray yeah. layer probably goes as far as an inter as yeah. far as a, an adaptation Agreed. uh goes and then are there also, any layers to it are we just presented with the core narrative uh I, I do think so i think we do get some sort of uh like post post story sort of like final yeah. epigraph kind of thing i don't know what you would even call that so but. you think like they are going to find some like papers or something and like this is an account that we're now reading and yeah i think something like that, could or, do or, that. Some, or some just like older version of emma stone's character about like victoria bella yeah. um kind of saying like oh yeah disputing some of the claims and everything like that when she is very successful but um yeah. in 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 adapting this there's so much again this is such like sort of like this material is so difficult to kind of uh approach and you have yeah. to handle it really well but i'm hearing nothing but great things from yorgos yeah. lanthimos's adaptation and and i think talking about unreliable narrators and how it's difficult to depict that with the camera i do think that you just you show multiple version of events like you show the same scene okay. maybe from a couple different perspectives and and that's gonna imply like some level of of uh you know well, one of the other things narrative. you can do that occur occurs to me, and honestly, Alistair Gray does it a little bit here and we didn't talk about. At times, he pushes the bounds of what 
could be real. Like there's this scream that Baxter emits that is said to have been heard like all over the city. Yeah. Um, and it's described as like a, a gaping hole that like almost like is, takes over his entire head as he's screaming. It's described in a surrealist way. If the film does a lot of surrealism in that sense and like pushes the bounds of like what could even be possible in the real world, that will push it into an area of like, is this true? Right. Yeah, totally. Um, so I, that I think we're cool. gonna. I don't know much just... about this filmmaker, by the way. Have you, what other what other movies? Has he made that you you have seen? I'm just curious. Like the lobster he directed, which was really okay. popular. I don't know, maybe close to ten years ago. He did. Yeah, Dog yeah. Tooth. I remember hearing about that one. Dog Tooth was huge. Somewhat recently, he did uh, the Killing of a Sacred Deer. Mm, heard of that one? Okay, haven't seen any of these. There, I mean, he's an excellent filmmaker. Like, legitimately, cool. since basically the lobster, he's been yeah. in my my t- top tier of of working filmmakers. So the, mo- the thing I'm probably most excited about is that it seems to me like this is going to be a much more focused story on Bella. Yeah. And we might get more of that sense of like how she feels about herself. Um, and it's going to take the story, I think, and give it to her in a way that you could consider it kind of just partially hers in this book. I agree with you. I think I think we'll see some adjusting. I don't think it's yeah. going to be like one for one because it'd be very difficult to pull off. And and I think that there's some interpretation needed, maybe some yeah. adjusting. Um, like I said, I've heard nothing but good things. And speaking of, another one that that people loved that was actually nominated as well from Yorgos Lanthimos was um, the favorite, which also had Emma Stone. So they're okay. collaborating again in this one. So I'm just so excited. I I had to really restrain myself from going to see this uh, before we covered it for the podcast. So I'm so excited. Well, I am beyond excited now that I've read this, man. Like, I am so interested to see what is done here. So if you want to hear our take on the film, that'll be next week. So make sure to join us for that. If you enjoyed this episode and you enjoyed our coverage of Poor Things, uh, let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you're listening on. And if you're on YouTube, make sure to subscribe and leave us a comment. It helps, you know, with the algorithm. But also, we like to read them and we like to engage with people and let us know your thoughts on this book. And maybe if you've only seen the movie and you hadn't read this book, like, how does this strike you? Um, I'm really curious to hear from people. And be sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. We're also on TikTok and YouTube Shorts and all the other stuff. So make sure you yeah. make sure you find us wherever you can. Blue Sky. Um, also, if you would like to support this podcast in another way, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash ink to film. And on there, you get tons of bonus content, um, including, you know, alternate adaptations uh, that we've covered for like our mainline ones on the on the feed. So um, it's a great way to support us financially and helps us keep this thing going. And thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right. That's going to be it for this week. So until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.